Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness is brought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. One more time. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was brought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Why don't you give the worship team a round of applause for serving us this morning. Uh, my name is Lloyd Biddle. I am one of the pastors here at High Point. Um, Pastor Nick is on vacation. Uh, he loves to, to get away with, yeah, give him a round of applause for that. That's good. Um, pastoring is, is hard work. And also fathering uh, young children like he's got is also equally challenging work. So they've been away in uh, New York State, and I know he likes to hunt and fish and camp. And, and so just pray that he would be rested and rejuvenated. So uh, last week we had Bill and Diane Taylor give their testimony of 50 years of marriage. Uh, this week we're going to continue in uh, Luke's, and we're going to talk about uh, humility especially as it relates to Christian leaders. And then next week, you're going to hear, you had a great treat in store. Uh, one of our pastors, Manohar James, is going to be here preaching. Some of you have had the opportunity to hear him before, but if you haven't, you're in for a good treat. He gave us a preview this past week in our Sunday planning, and so I'm excited for what he's going to bring to us next week. All right? And so we'll get started. We're in the Gospel of Luke this morning. Um, we're in... Uh, in your Bibles, if you would, turn to page 1579. And while you're turning, I'm just going to say a little prayer for myself. Lord, uh, my prayer is that you would uh, use me to declare your message uh, clearly, uh, plainly, and with power to your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to look at Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 56. So we'll be looking at pages 1579 and 1580. This uh, picks up right after the transfiguration. So after Jesus' glory has been revealed to Peter, James, and John, and they come down from this mountain, this is where the story picks up. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, 
healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them. So they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a child, took a little child, and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus says, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. When the King of Kings and Lord of Lords dies for ordinary human beings, we witness the greatest act of humility the world has ever known. The crowd, you see, is amazed at the greatness of Jesus. He has taken a child. His disciples were unable to cast the demon out. Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith, and then the people in general for their sins, brings the child to himself, casts out the, the demon, and then gives the child back to his parents. And everyone is there awe-stricken. It's becoming clear that more than an ordinary prophet is among them, that indeed the Messiah, the son of David, the eternal king that would sit on David's throne, has come in the flesh and is prepared to rule. And this is an amazing thing. But what amazes me more than Jesus' power to perform miracles is his humility in coming for us at all. In verse 44, he says very succinctly, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So after this great power, what Jesus' display of power, what he wants to do is to show them his purpose. Here I am, God. And the people are thinking, yes, Israel is going to be delivered. We're going to rule with our God. And then the next thing out of his mouth is, I'm about to die. 
I'm going to be delivered into the hands of sinners. This is the second time he said this. He says more explicitly what he means in verse 40, in verse 22, when he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. But his disciples didn't, did not understand it, uh, this. In verse 45, it seems to suggest, it says that they were afraid. It says that the meaning was hidden from them. But what it doesn't say is that if they had asked Jesus, that he wouldn't have told them what the meaning of his death was. What were they afraid of? Were they afraid that their dreams of being um, the key point leaders with Jesus Christ were all going to dissipate? That this earthly and, and current reign that they had hoped was not going to be the case? And what's very interesting is after Jesus tells them the second time about his death, they immediately break into an argument about what? About who is the greatest. In their minds, of course, is not, nothing about humility. It's all about pride. But Jesus has come to share with us what his purpose. His purpose is to die a substitutionary death so that ordinary people like you and me can be reconciled to God. That's why he's here, that in addition to miracles and healings in Christ's name, the most important miracle in healing is when a lost person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, I am come to die and rise again so that you can die to yourself and live in Christ. That is the purpose that I'm here. And when we think about the greatness of Jesus, the fact that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that he would die for ordinary people, we need to let it sink in the magnitude of this. I like the way Philippians chapter 2 talks about this. It says that he didn't grasp at the fact that he was divinity, but he took on uh, the, the body of nothing in comparison to God, even though we are made into the image of God, his greatness and grandeur so exceeds ours, it's like becoming nothing. He became nothing for our sakes. It's not possible for any human being to lower themselves anymore than Jesus lowered himself for us. And in so doing, Jesus shows us that the godly leader, a godly leader, is a humble leader. That's what I want to talk about today. That godliness requires humility. Um, in verses of 44 through 56, which is what I'm going to concentrate on this morning, I want to show you four aspects of gospel humility. Four aspects of gospel humility in succession. The first one is, humility means eagerly receiving the lowly for Jesus' sake. Arguments started between the disciples as to which of them would be the, the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. What, what are our notions of greatness? Um, what is greatness to us? Is it power and prestige 
resources? Is it talent and skill? In Christ, he wants us to know that greatness has nothing to do with any of those. It has to do with the humility that's required to come to Jesus in faith and then the humility to serve others in Christ's name. There's two components of humility in this first uh, area. The first is the, the humility to give aid to those who need it. So he takes a child, and the reason he brings a child is he wants us to understand is that um, Christians, we are called to serve people regardless of status, people with no status whatsoever. We serve because the need is there. And secondly, um, in this era of giving lots of resources and giving time for your own personal glory and for your own um, esteem, Christians are to do none of that. We are to serve for God's glory. Here's how the Christian life works. We repent of our sins. We come to Christ in faith. We receive the Holy Spirit. We live according to his will, and we serve in his power. You see how this works? He gives to us first, and we give back to others, and it's all to Jesus' glory. Oftentimes, like when I'm, even this particular week of preparing for preaching, it, this was a tough week. This was a tough week to prepare, and I don't, I don't know why. I was so excited about this passage on humility. There's so much for me to learn in this passage. I was so excited. But, uh, but this, every so often I'll get this nervousness and I'll get this attack that, that I can't do it. I just, I just can't flesh it out. And the truth is I can't. I can't do it. I just can't flesh it out. I have to learn to depend on Jesus in me. He can do it through his power. He can do it through his word. And I can trust Jesus in doing things. And that's what this is telling us. That the first aspect of humility is to serve people just for the need that they have. And we serve in Christ's power, not ours, and for Christ's glory, not ours. That's the first thing. Now, there's many things that we do at our church. I'm so proud of us because I really think that, oh, man, High Point is a very entrepreneurial kind of church. It actually drives the pastors crazy. You guys want to do so many different things to serve others. And you're always coming to us with this idea. I want, to, I want to serve the homeless. I want to serve this other place. And we're trying to figure out, man, how do we keep our arms around these things? And the truth is, we really can't. <laughs> we can't put our arms around what Jesus is doing through you, right? The best we can do is to try to keep us together in unity, right? But here are a couple of the things that I've seen recently. Just a couple of the things that I see us doing to receive those who are really in need. Um, Allison Lathine runs, uh, has started, established a, a ministry to refugees. And I think this is very timely ministry for us Americans, right? These are people who had to flee their country because of persecution. And these folks in this ministry, they receive folks, they give rides, they give food, they, they teach English. And recently, one of the persons is four different families that have come that we serve. And one of them had their child here in the U.S. And so they had a baby shower there. And what an awesome way to show the love of Jesus to people, in, in these cases, 
to my knowledge, none of them are Christian. Uh, just because we love them and would love them for them to know the love of Christ. Second thing you should know about our benevolence program. Uh, they don't brag about this, but they do an awesome work. They are, is a Dietrich Gruen, who is one of our head deacons. Every Monday he sees approximately four to six people that are not high point people that are in our Dane County footprint. He prays. He, uh, when, when we can help and it makes and it's prudent, we give help. And while he's there meeting with people, Craig is there waiting with folks. They, a lot of times they'll bring their children. And Craig is playing with children in our lobby, right? And so, and then the backup for that is Rick Zenda. All three of these are deacons. That word means servants of the church. And the wonderful thing is when you give in those yellow envelopes, over more money goes to non-high point people than goes to high point people. That's wonderful benevolence. And there's all kinds of things that we do. Care net, this, uh, meals to the homeless. There's many things that we do to receive the lowly in Jesus' name. And these are wonderful things. But I want to challenge you with two questions, or a few questions. Our church in some ways uh, is getting a little bit uh, older. The demands for our seniors in terms of just care and concern is increasing. And so I have a question for you this morning. When is the last time you visited someone outside of your family who was sick or ill? And if you feel like this is a kind of ministry that you would like to participate in, check with me. I'm one of the pastors who's in charge of this. How many of you are caring for the sick? whether it's uh, high-point people or non-high-point people, visiting someone who's ill, who needs your prayers and concern. Secondly, when have you checked in on an elderly person? At our church, there's probably now three or four who are what I would call kind of homebound. They can't really get out and come to church at all. Uh, do you remember them? Do you think about them? Would you be willing to visit them? These are those who really need our care, right? Thirdly, have you cared for someone who is grieving? Uh, we, it's funny, we go through these periods at High Point where we haven't had a funeral for several months, and then more recently here, we have grieving families. I think of the Spinetta's family, Terry Spinetta. I think of Lynn Rawhauser, whose who's, uh, sister Ruth passed. When is the last time you went to someone who's grieving? Maybe the loss of a loved one, or maybe the loss of a job, or maybe just some other form of loss. When is the last time you took some time to pray and to come alongside someone who is grieving? And lastly, when you see a need that you can meet, are you choosing to meet it or just walk past? Um, in Chicago, where I'm from, in the downtown area, Man, you, there's homeless all over this, the place. There's homeless here in Madison. And I'm seeing increasingly around our malls that people are asking for, for, for needs and, and they have uh, requests for help. Are you really thinking about how it is that you might be of assistance? Or are you kind of just rushing by? Can you, if you see a legitimate need, are you willing to step out and help? Because one of the signs of humility is that we help the lowly in Jesus' name. Secondly, 
Um, humility is greatness in the kingdom of God. Humility is greatness. You want to know what's great? Think about the most humble people in our congregation. Think about the most humble folks that you know. That's greatness in Jesus' eyes. Luke 48, 948b, for it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Who is the least among you all? Uh, it turns out the disciples were always disputing among themselves about who the greatest were. There's countless examples in the Gospels. Here's a second example. Right near when Jesus is about to give his life, right after he, 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 uh, he participates in the Lord's Supper, this is the dispute that breaks out next. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatness, the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. They are bosses, they issue orders, and they let you know who's in charge. They lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. And so even when they're generous, they want the they want the notoriety of their generosity. Call me benefactor. Not so. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. I think of my, uh, my younger brother, Robert, when we were growing up. There was a clear pecking order. It was my older brother, Lawrence, who was five years older. He bossed me around. And then I would boss around the younger Jason, right? Jared, rather. I'm thinking of my sons. Uh, Robert. Robert is my, my, old, my youngest brother. And so that we had this clear pecking order, right? I don't say it was right, but that's just how it went. He gave orders to me, I gave orders to this one, and if he didn't, we would, you know, wrestle them and they'd make them do it, right? And so, and so apparently this was this ancient practice. Uh, 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 but you are not like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who is at the table eating? or the one who is standing and serving? Is it not the one who's at the table? But listen to what Jesus says. But I am among you as the one who serves. Like I've been in leadership a pretty long time. And when I uh, let this settle in my soul, it always stops me in my tracks because I'm always having to fight against my natural proclivity, which is to lead by giving orders and instruction first, and setting an example and loving others second. I'm always fighting against that natural kind of proclivity, right? We would say, biblical language would say, I'm fighting against the flesh. And uh, my guess is some of you might have that same kind of challenge. But thankfully, if you've come to Christ through faith and have received the Holy Spirit, you are now into a new era, a new way of leadership. And the paradox of the kingdom of God is that the great ones become servants, and the chiefs among us become the servants of all. That's one of the reasons why you want to be praying for Pastor Nick and that he would be refreshed when he gets around. I'm starting to recognize that the burdens of the pastor, I've been five years into this thing now, and I'm not the senior pastor. But when I think about all of the different needs and concerns that we see, if I'm not really paying attention that it's really not me as the, as the great shepherd, I'm just an under shepherd, 
Some of those needs can be tremendous. And we're responsible for the souls. So pray for Pastor Nick. Pray for the elders. Because um, here is how leadership works in the kingdom of God. Look on the, t- on the left side. The needs of the people are paramount. And the leaders on the bottom. Versus on the right side, the needs of the leader is paramount. And the needs of the, of the people, they support the leader's uh, needs and, and objectives. Now, I learned a very humbling and embarrassing lesson probably 12, 14 years ago. And I was in a, a mid-level leadership position, and, and we were having a convention, and we were celebrating the sales successes. And the chairman and CEO, Harvey Pierce, was there with his wife, Dolores. And I remember saying to myself, year after year, we have to, we put this program together to represent sales in the first quarter of the year, year after year. And I I had been doing this now for seven, eight years, and I was tired. It's a lot of work, a lot of extra weekend time, a lot of time away from the family. And as I was looking at Harvey, I was like, not only is he coming to our meeting, he's going to do eight more of these meetings over the next several weeks. So I said to Harvey, I said, Harvey, I said, this must get really old to you after a while. And I'll never forget this. Harvey turned to me and he said, Lloyd, no, this is one of the greatest privileges I have. I get a chance to go across the organization and recognize the people who are taking care of our customers. I get a chance to encourage them by telling them what the vision of our organization is. No, Lloyd, this is a great opportunity for me. And his wife was right there uh, saying amen to it. And I was like, oh, God, I feel like an idiot. I'm a Christian. I ought to know that it is that you should lead, that leadership is from um, supporting the needs of other people. That leadership is about giving and meeting the needs of others. I should have known that. And it was a great reminder to me because of this. Jesus wants us to understand that to be great in his kingdom is to be a humble servant. How are you in terms of being a, a, a wife and, and you, to your children? Would they categorize you as a humble servant? Husbands, would your wife and your children categorize you as a humble servant? When you think about your work, would the people around you who you have some responsibility for, would they categorize you as humble in the way that you lead and, 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 and oversee operations? Or would, would they say there's more pride and hubris? Humility is, is greatness in the kingdom of God. Thirdly, humility means supporting the ministry of others. Luke 9, 49 through 50. Master, said John, We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not on our team. He's not one of us. Don't stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. And this is really tremendously ironic. So they're not dealing with a a doctrinal dispute because this man is actually casting out demons in Jesus' name. So he's got it right. He has faith, and in fact... Remember in verse 40, in the scene just prior, a man comes and begs their disciples, Jesus' disciples, the ones that were walking with him, didn't even have enough faith to throw out. But here this man is, a believer in Jesus, obviously full of the Spirit, casting out demons, and they want to stop him. Just, Just a tremendous irony. And so one of the things we want to remember 
is that we are not in rivalry with Christians, that, let's say, outside of High Point Church. We're not in rivalry with others. In fact, we want to support other ministries. Humility means supporting the ministry of others. And so I think we have a good track record as well in this area at our church. And so you should know that we've got, I don't know, 15 or 20 missionaries, short-term missionaries right now in the DR in partnership with Crossroads Church. We've been doing this for several years, right? We have supported the interim pastor at Mount Zion. We've partnered with them to support the pastor there at Upper House. I see Becca, I think, over in the crowd there. I supported Becca by giving them my best employee, one of my best employees. They came over. In fact, there's Lisa Dolliger, who also used to be on staff at High Point Church, now also works for the, so I don't know what, we must be the farm system for Upper House, right? But they are a, a, a really strong ministry trying to help infuse faith in, a, in academia as well as in the marketplace. So we partner with them, with volunteers in many different ways. Uh, faith Place, you have this opportunity to come. We've been partnering and helping that church thrive for some time, and yet there's another opportunity that you might be able to come and help next Saturday. Uh, Gateway. Gateway is a church, a small church in Middleton, and we partner with them with benevolence. So they're a smaller church, and when somebody has need, they send them to, to us, and Dietrich will actually see the person, and we'll use their resources to help folks in our community. We partner in that way, right? And then, of course, we have two churches that are meeting here in our building, Rivers of Living Water and Church of Restoration and Life. And so there, there's some really positive ways in which we are supporting the ministries of others, that we are not operating like rivals. We're operating like brothers and sisters. That's a good thing. Here's a question for you. How are you personally involved in this? Are you personally involved in blessing folks in other ministries? Maybe giving to missionaries? Maybe praying for missionaries? maybe actually going out and serving at CareNet or in some whole host of variety of ways that you can get involved? Are you actually supporting other ministries? Secondly, when we see positive impact that other churches or Christians are having in our community, do we praise God and encourage them or are we envious? There's another thing I've learned about being on church staff. Um, it, when I worked for American Family, we used to hate State Farm, our, our rival, you know. Increasingly, it was Geico and some of these direct writers, right? And so I wouldn't say that we supported them with, with prayer or any of that kind of thing. We, had, we considered them to be competitors, right? And I'm not saying that was good. I'm just telling you how we thought, how, how we thought, right? But we oughtn't be thinking that way about local churches or parachurch ministries in our area that are doing really well. We ought to be trying to support Crew or InterVarsity or Door Creek or uh, Geneva Church. You name, you name the church. You name the Christian. We want to be supporting them with prayers. We want to even join them and help when we can, right? Because... Uh, Humility in the, in the kingdom of God is about supporting other ministries. It's about supporting other ministries. Last one. 
Humility means not seeking vengeance against your enemies. It means not seeking vengeance against your enemies. Luke 9, 51 and 56. As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went on into the Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. The Samaritans and the Jews were were rivals. The Samaritans were considered half-breeds. And they uh, worshipped in uh, Mount Gerizim in their territory. They did not uh, respect, see uh, Jerusalem as the only place to, to worship. They were Jewish, but they weren't Jewish, and the Jewish people just really looked down upon them. And here they are, right, coming through, and they need a place to stay, and they want to share their message, and they're like, no, we don't have none of that. You don't want to talk to us any other time. We don't want you here now, right? So they send them, they send them on their way. And the disciples are like, hey, don't you know who this is? This is Jesus that's coming. You don't treat the Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords that way. Jesus, shouldn't we just, shouldn't we call down fire on them? And Jesus says, you, you obviously don't know what kind of spirit you are made of. You don't know what my mission is about. John 3, 17 says it this way. It said, for God the Father did not send Jesus the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That we, are, we should be praying that those who oppose us even vociferously with hostility, we should be praying that God would give us an open door that his message would penetrate their hearts and turn them to Jesus Christ. I want to leave you now with what I consider to be probably one of the greatest examples of this in American missions history. And some of you will know some of the story about Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, but I doubt that you will know all of the details of that. I want to leave you with this because I can't think of any people that more illustrate that, um, that a, a, a godly leader is a humble leader and also that uh, humility is not seeking vengeance against those who oppose you. I think that the Elliots are like perfect examples of that. So bear with me while I tell you their story. January 2nd, 1956 was the day that 29-year-old Jim Elliott had waited for most of his life. He jumped out of bed, dressed as quickly as he could, got ready for the short flight over the thick Ecuador jungle. Almost three years of jungle ministry and many hours of planning and praying had led Jim to this day. Within hours, he and four other missionaries, Ed McCauley, Roger uh, Uderian, Nate Smith, and Pete Fleming, would be setting up camp in a dangerous territory, an uncivilized tribe known as the Aucas. The Aucas had killed all outsiders ever caught in their area. Even though it was dangerous, Jim and his friends had no doubt that God wanted them to share the gospel with the Aucas. 
And the missionaries had experienced good success serving other communities and other native peoples in the area. So they were convinced that God would give them victory with the Akas too. Now, Nate Saint was a missionary supply pilot. He came up with a way to lower a bucket of supplies down to the people while they were flying. He thought this would be a perfect way to win the trust of the Akas without putting people in danger. They began dropping gifts to the Akas, and they used the amplifier, and they knew a few Akka phrases, and they just talked about friendship. And then as a while, for, for several days, they were passing these gifts down, and the Akas even began to send gifts up. They would put stuff in the bucket, returning things upward. And, and in a day or two, a couple of Akan people kind of came by, and they, and they and visited with them on the beach. And they had a meal. In fact, um, the pilot took one of the people on his plane. It was a, two, a two-seater plane. And even gave him a flight. And they sent them out. They said, hey, why don't you call all of your people to come? Why don't you just have them come out to us? And so um, several days passed. And then they look and they saw coming out of the jungle uh, uh, two, two ladies, Auckland women. And they thought, man, this is it. This is the day. And they jump in the, in the water that was between where they were and where the, the women were. They jumped into the water. And then as soon as they kind of got in the water, they heard this loud noise behind them. And it was the Aachen uh, warriors with their spears. Now, here's the thing I didn't know. These missionaries, they had weapons. They could have defended themselves. But they had made a choice that they were not going to kill these native people who hadn't had the opportunity to hear Jesus, even if it meant that they were going to have to die. So in seconds, all of these five missionaries were killed and speared to death. But the story doesn't end there. The U.S. sends a small party out to find them. Um, they, they find the, the five missionaries and bury them. And two years after their death, which was in January 8th, 1957, Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's uh, widow, and her daughter Valerie, and Rachel Saint, one of the uh, other men's daughters, uh, sisters, were able to move into this village and lead many Aukens to faith. In fact, they even ministered to a couple of the men who were responsible for the deaths of the missionaries. This is like amazing to me. If I would have been Elizabeth Elliot, I would have been like, I want vengeance. I want justice. But what these spirit-filled believers wanted more was the opportunity to have Jesus' love reach people who had never heard the gospel before. Uh, Jim is known known to make this one uh, statement. He says, uh, he is no fool who takes what he cannot keep in order to win what he will never lose. So he took what he could not keep his life in order to win what he could never lose, which was the souls of many Aachen uh, villagers. This is because a, a godly A leader is a humble leader. And through the Holy Spirit of Jesus working in us, Christians do not take vengeance even against our enemies. Let us pray.